listening to the mental health download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Addie McCasland. Today we're talking with Stephanie Newman, Street Outreach and Rapid Response Case Manager for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. Stephanie is a native Oklahoman who in childhood experienced a sexual trauma that went unaddressed, resulting in a crescendo-like progression of events that ultimately culminated in the loss of her children, her home, her dignity. Humanity stepped in knowing that everyone has value and possibility and took a chance on her. Now, two decades later, she's celebrating 16 years of recovery and continuing her sixth year of employment with Mental Health Association Oklahoma. We are grateful to have Stephanie on today as she shares her story with us. It should be noted that this conversation touches on sexual trauma and loss. While it's important dialogue to have, we understand that it could be difficult for some listeners. The mental health download starts now. Can you tell the listeners your name and what you do with the association? My name is Stephanie Ladon Newman, and I am a case manager for the street outreach and rapid response team in Oklahoma City. I came to Mental Health Association in June 2017, and I was a service coordinator for the Mental Health Association Supported Housing Program. It was a brand new supported housing program in Oklahoma City. So that's how I started with Mental Health Association. Okay. What does a service coordinator do? Service coordination is unique. It is a offshoot of traditional case management. It is a way of helping and empowering people that are already housed, uh-huh. helping them achieve the fullness of self-sustainability while I'm housed. Of course, if I'm a person that needs supported housing, then I want to achieve that new dimension of self-sustainability, which is being able to carry out a lease. Mm-hmm. being able to carry out utility deposits, you know, being able to navigate through going to actually pay bills or as we know now that a lot of our utility payments are made online, you know, some people that utilize supported housing have probably never paid their bills online. Mm-hmm. They utilize money orders or paper checks or those pay side kiosks. Uh So a service coordinator helps those people learn those systems and helps those people stay diligent on those type of pathways Mm -hmm. because those type of pathways is what keeps you housed. Right. You have to pay your utilities. Right have to stay lease compliant. Mm-hmm. I am a product of a supported housing program. Mm-hmm. So I have that type of knowledge and I also have that type of lived experience to help empower my participants that I work with. Mm-hmm. So essentially you're doing the very, or you were doing when you were in that role, the very important work of helping 
participants keep up with modern day world so they didn't fall behind again, which ultimately could be falling behind back into homelessness. Can you tell us a little bit about your role as a case manager for the street outreach team? So street outreach and rapid response case management is going out into the community and making contact with individuals that sleep on the street mm -hmm. and just bringing them within our reach. Uh -huh. We call it outreach, but I like to think that I'm bringing those people within my reach because, you know, we, we, we live in the city, we drive around the city every day, but mm -hmm. if, if we didn't show you where people sleep outside every night, you might not be able to tell, you know. Yeah. So we go out and we bring those people within our reach so that we can walk this walk with them. Mm -hmm. It's a journey. It is a sojourn, I like to think of. <laughs> yeah. We uplift them mm -hmm. and we show them that the navigation from sleeping outside to sleeping inside mm -hmm. my own home with a door key right with my own light switches yeah you know, my own refrigerator you know I can open my own oven door and cook a meal when I choose yeah like that that is a journey because when I'm sleeping on the street, those are things that I get used to not being able to do right. on my own. I get used to asking the cashier at the convenience store, can I use your microwave mm -hmm. after I utilize my snap card to buy cold food and I warm it up in the convenience store microwave. Mm -hmm. So I, in my mind... I, I need assistance to transition into, oh, I have my own microwave now. Right. Yeah. I'd like to punctuate that, that point you said earlier about if you don't know where to look for people who are living on the streets, it's so easy to miss. Having been on a ride along with you, I, I have seen that that is true. It's easy to just continue to breeze forward through your life while there are people out there needing help and they could be hidden by bushes or an overpass or an abandoned house. And, and it is easy to miss if we're, if we're not diligent in actually going out into the streets, boots on the ground, doing the work. <laughs> so how long have you been a case manager with the street outreach team and rapid response? So in early 2020, mm -hmm. early COVID, I was approached by one of our former Oklahoma City Director of Operations, mm -hmm. MJ, and Sheila Farley. Uh -huh. With HA, got funding through United Way of Central Oklahoma. Yay. <laughs> one of our trusted, very valued community partners. Yes, for sure. They gave us funding for our street outreach and rapid response team. It was a wayfinder mm -hmm. uh, funding. They appreciated the proposal. They saw the vision. And MJ said, Stephanie, you know, I think that you would really be a valuable part of the team. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see it at first, just being completely transparent. I did not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought about it. I told her, I said, I will think about it. I will pray about it. I will, you know, get with my mentorship, my support network, mm -hmm. and I'll get back with you. And so I got with my support network. I did some inventories, some personal inventories. And I took a look at some of the barriers that I was experiencing with service coordination. I had hit some barriers. I had created some barriers, just being completely transparent. I had created some barriers and they were hard for me to get through. So I decided to step out on faith and I decided that I wanted to apply for street outreach and rapid response. I went through the, the normal hiring process. I, I interviewed, I applied, I submitted my resume and I rocked it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure. I did. But you know, Addie, now listen, I will tell you that I do have it. I absolutely do have it. I care. Uh-huh. I care. Mm -hmm. I love going out. I do. I love going out. I loved going to people's homes, mm -hmm. you know, trying to see how I could help them, you know, maybe change the way they lived. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the barriers that I created because I believe that maybe they needed to change the way they live. I see. Okay. So I needed to change the way I thought about the way they live. It's and funny how we have those moments, isn't it? Oh, yes. Oh. For the rest of our lives, these moments <laughs> of clarity where like just need to take a step back and really examine the situation and what our role is in that dynamic. Good for you. I, yeah. I'm absolutely teachable. I, absolutely. I stay teachable. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that allows me to continue to grow in this position as an outreach case manager. Mm -hmm. I meet a plethora of different individuals, but not only do I meet the individual themselves, but mm -hmm. I meet their barriers. Right. I meet the things that are hindering them. Mm -hmm. I meet the things that we as a community have caused. Mm -hmm. I meet the issues that they face every day. Mm -hmm. So I have to be able to adapt very quickly in the moment Mm -hmm. In the instant, I have to be able to adapt and very quickly think on my feet. What can I do for this person in the moment? How can I, you know, meet an immediate need? Mm -hmm. How can I, like, a lot of times I have to translate because right. our unhoused community, they have their own vernacular. It's almost a dialect. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And when I approach them, I have to be willing to listen for what they do not think I'm listening for, uh -huh. if that makes sense. If yeah. They will speak, but a lot of times they will speak and say things that they do not believe I'm listening for. Mm -hmm. They will say, well, I, you know, I'm on the waiting list uh -huh. you know, because they think that's what I'm listening for. Uh -huh. So I can leave them alone. Right. <laughs>
you're, you know, if they think I know that they're on a waiting list, well, I'm going to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. But a waiting list is really not the end of the story. That's just the beginning. Right. You know? So I'm here to try to get to the end of the story. I want the outcome. Yeah. And you can ask my supervisor, my director. I am an outcome focused mm -hmm. case manager. Mm -hmm. I'm focused on the outcome. Yeah. How can we get you into permanent housing? Mm -hmm. You know, my goal plans, they state that. Right. This person expressed a desire to obtain permanent housing. Mm -hmm. That is our goal plan. Yeah. And I suspect that the reason you're so passionate and so fully immersed in this role and so focused on the outcome is because of the lived experience you mentioned earlier when we first started. Absolutely. If you are willing, can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I am a person in long-term recovery uh -huh. from the illness of addiction and mental health mm -hmm. illnesses. I have co-occurring disorders. I'm duly diagnosed. Mm -hmm. I am 16 years in recovery. Mm -hmm. I was chronically homeless uh -huh. for three years in Oklahoma City, greater Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. I slept on the street. I slept outside. I slept in abandoned structures. Mm -hmm. I slept in shelters. I utilized inpatient facilities. Mm -hmm. I utilized the Oklahoma County Detention Center psychiatric facility <laughs> on the 13th floor. Sure. <laughs> I am a consumer of the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Treatment Services, who back in the back in my day, the wonderful Terry White, I knew CEO was the commissioner back then. Uh -huh. So I am a consumer. I am a face and a voice of what those services can look like. Mm -hmm. As a result, as the outcome, mm -hmm. when those services are made readily available, readily available. I am also a product of the Oklahoma County Drug Court uh -huh. system, which means I had a criminal justice involvement and prison diversion services. Mm -hmm. So my lived experience touches four or five state agencies maybe six or seven community partner agencies that I utilize today and that I contact, advocate with for the people that I serve today. Right. So it's lived experience, you know, it's my heart experience, you know, it's it's my day-to-day -day experience. I'm completely grounded in it mm -hmm. and I am completely grateful for it. Uh -huh. So can you tell us what started your pathway towards homelessness? What was the trigger? So my pathway to homelessness, the catalyst was I had unaddressed mental health issues mm -hmm. 
that started from a childhood sexual trauma uh-huh. that was pervaded by school bullying. I was a, a single parent home, just a tad bit above the poverty line. I had my first anxiety, full-blown anxiety attack when I was nine years old in the um, of the elementary school I was attending. What did that and, feel like? What was what was a panic or an anxiety attack at nine years old like? And did you know what it was when you were experiencing it? I did not. Okay. My stepfather was an alcoholic. He was not abusive. Mm-hmm. It was just weird. And it was something that I could not control. Mm-hmm. And I did not have the words. I did not have to know how to tell anyone. Sure. And I, I had stuffed all of the sexual trauma. So at that time, it, it just came out. Mm-hmm. And it was just assumed by the adults in my life that that was what the trauma was at that time. It was scary. Um, It was overwhelming. But once I look back and after my studies and, and, you know, being in treatment and things like that, it was an anxiety attack with the tears, the elevated heart rate. Mm-hmm. I had a little small plastic comb and I had bangs like this in my hair and I had tangled my hair in the comb uh-huh. while I was in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And I was muttering incoherently uh-huh. like that to myself. And I really, to be honest, I do not know the exact trigger, Sure, but I do remember that vividly. I remember being sent home. I do not remember who picked me up or how mm-hmm. I got home or anything like that. I do remember that later that year, that mother got divorced and we no longer had a male figure in the household after that. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, I started experimenting with alcohol. I took my first drink and it was we binge drink with my friends my peers at 13 13 years old yes okay and I was the only one that experienced all of the textbook symptoms I overdrank I acted out sexually I took my clothes off I did all of that Uh oh yeah yeah I grew up with some really sweet kids. My friends, I grew up with some really, really sweet kids. We all still talk. We are, they are all still very supportive of me. I think everybody that I grew up with just saw something in me and they knew they just really didn't know, you know. Yeah. We all just grew up together. We were very integrated. We were all taught you know, just love. And I mean, we all got along. I mean, I had friends. I didn't, you know, I went through, I thought I was cute. I, you know, so really did not have that hard of an upbringing, especially, you know, school was really the place to be when I was young. Sure. It really was. 
So fast forward. Can I pause you for a moment? Sure. So you had you had that first binge shrinking episode at 13 years old. Did you continue? Did that become a pattern at 13? Or was, was that an isolated incident? Yeah. That was isolated, Addy, because that same year I started having symptoms of a inflammatory a bowel disease okay. disorder. Uh-huh. Um, and it took almost two years for me to be diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Uh-huh. And there was a horrifying experience. I missed almost my whole freshman year uh-huh. in high school. It was a very embarrassing illness. So no, that was an isolated incident. And by the time I was accurately diagnosed, I had lost a tremendous amount of weight Um, I'd missed a lot of school. So of course the depression and the anxiety had escalated by that time, but I had no idea how to self-medicate around that time. So I did not get back into drinking until I was like, I started working and, you know, mother, my mother started exhibiting some mental health issues that she covered up. So I didn't have time to be sick. I didn't have time. I had I have a younger sister that I took responsibility of around that time. So my alcoholism didn't escalate until I was 19. How did you cope? You know, you said you didn't start drinking again until you were about 17. So there's a mm-hmm. window in there and you'd already had an anxiety attack at nine years old. How did you cope with the anxiety during that that period from 13 to 17 years old? If you tried the drinking and that you were you were out on that, what was your other tool or what were your tools? Or did you have any? I did. I read books. I'm an avid reader. I liked watching television. I journaled. I have a lot of journals that I still have. I don't know how they escape the madness, but I still have some old journals. Incredible. I would yeah. love to have my journals from my teenage years. Yes, I still have some of those. And when I got sick, I couldn't do anything else. You know, ulcerative colitis is in the same family as Crohn's disease. And it's a very, very debilitating illness. Mm-hmm. So I, I just couldn't do anything else. I didn't have energy strength for anything. Uh-huh. So once I got in remission from that, I was put into remission with steroids and sulfur drugs. Mm-hmm. And so coupled that with teenage hormones and I had this explosion of just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And I had some negative influences that were a little bit more progressed than I was with the street life and drugs and alcohol. So I progressed very quickly into criminal behaviors, self-medicating with marijuana and alcohol. So ages 17 to 19, I was going to jail. I was working. I was dancing in strip clubs. I was using cocaine. So there's a period of time where I had a lot of mug shots at the Oklahoma County Jail. I'm so glad that nobody's ever pulled that stuff, but you could see the progression of my illness. I did extreme hair changes, like from blonde to platinum blonde. I've got mug shots with hazel contacts. I've got mug shots with big gold jewelry. Oh, I was 
fabulous. Okay. <laughs> I was fabulous, Eddie. Okay. You're I still fabulous. Just okay. <laughs> I had it down packed. I was just covering it up. Mm -hmm. I was covering the outside up and yeah. the inside was, I was so sick. Yeah. So I started having children. So I was creating some more issues. Sure. Yeah. And I started having abusive relationships, mutual abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. So I ended up homeless mm -hmm. with three children in 2003. How old were the children then? Seven, four, and three. Okay. And fortunately, they were removed from my custody within about nine months. Uh -huh because I was unsuccessfully parenting and using drugs, cocaine, marijuana. I was trying to perform sex work and leaving them in unsafe places and dangerous situations and things like that. And my family had tried to intervene at one point in time and I scoffed at them. I was very ill, very ill in my mind. And so the children were removed in 2004. Fortunately, mm -hmm. my family was able to get custody of my children, which was wonderful. Your mom got custody or did you have a sister or? My mother and my sister actually were able to get custody of my children in August, 2004. I actually had, was charged with criminal child neglect because my children were found in a very unsafe environment and I was guilty of that. Okay. I accepted that and I pled guilty. I did try to rectify that, but I was not capable. I was very ill in my mind. Yeah. Later on down the line through the Oklahoma County Drug Court program, I did get to rectify that charge. Sure. And also my possession of controlled dangerous substance charge. And it took drug court. Drug mm -hmm. court helped me tremendously. Mm -hmm. And the biggest component was treatment. Sure. Right. And Rehabilitation. Yes. You know. Yes. So drug court was also the catalyst for getting me into permanent supported housing. Through, was this through the association or through another agency? This was actually through Hope Community Services in Oklahoma City. So back then in 2007, Hope was the only agency here in Oklahoma City that had the permanent supported housing program. Okay. Right. Because Mental Health Association was not here in Oklahoma City yet. Right, right, right. Not yet. They were on the way. <laughs> if they had been here, I would have been in their program. Yeah. You know, and so with that being said, the value of supported housing programs cannot be compared. Mm -hmm. It was just like the trampoline. Mm -hmm. Just every time I bounced on it, I, I went up higher. Oh, I love that. And every time I came down and I bounced on that trampoline, I just went up higher and I grabbed another goal. Uh -huh. Every time, Addie. Can you see it? Yeah. I every time. Every time. And it was because of the supported housing programs. Sure. At least one thing, your foundation in your life was stable. You had absolutely stable too. Yeah. To come Absolutely. back and to work 
from to do the internal work and the external work from. So absolutely. Like I say, supported housing turned into one of the major springboards into myself sustainability. Sure. And and I will frequently remind, I will frequently qualify myself to my participants and I will let them know, you know, I myself have gone through supported housing programs. Mm -hmm. I messed up my my housing voucher, which is what we call Section 8. Uh You know, I had an abusive boyfriend. I had children. I allowed my boyfriend to live in the house without being on the lease and things like that. You know, I did those things that some of us do when, you know, we're living in poverty. We still have one foot in that unhealthy lifestyle and we're still, you know, going back and forth. Do we want to be healthy? Do we want to, you know, stay in the unhealthy lifestyle? So with that question of do we want to be healthy or do we want to stay in the unhealthy lifestyle? Do you think that it's really they're choosing which they want or which feels the most familiar, the most comfortable? So if you've somebody who's lived in an unhealthy lifestyle and then they know that living a healthier lifestyle is ultimately will feel better, but it's scary and hard to do the work to recover. Do you feel like that people are choosing to live unhealthy or do you feel like they're because they want it or because fear of the unknown? You know, we, we do a lot of things out of fear and then we don't do a lot of things out of fear. Yeah. However, if I never saw anybody achieve some of the things that I have achieved, I probably wouldn't believe it either. Right. You know, I needed a role model. I needed to see somebody in treatment stand up and say, you know, I'm getting ready to graduate drug court. Yay. Uh You know, I I needed to see somebody graduate drug court. I needed to see somebody at Hope say, I just got another apartment. I'm on my own lease. I'm full-time employed. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm signing my own lease. I needed to see that. Yeah. A lot of times people with the illness of alcoholism and drug addiction we have to see it to believe it sure you know we have to see it we don't even buy our drug sight unseen (laughs) (laughs) we we just don't you know we have to see it you know we I mean even some of us that may have illness that is so effective we're effective of something and we see things that other people may not be able to see, but I see it. So I believe it. Mm-hmm. So I role model these things for people. You know, I come to work. I go to work and I tell people, you know, today I may not be feeling my best, but I'm here because I need you to see that this is how we live. We will want to have things. You're modeling possibility. Yeah. And you're showing that making a decision out of hope is worth it rather than defaulting to a decision due to fear. 
Right. I labored through a bachelor's in psychology and ethics. And my primary purpose for achieving that goal was when I was in long-term inpatient treatment, my counselor and my clinical director, they labored me through my treatment. It was book and chapter reviews. Mm-hmm. Every time I had an issue, you know, they they didn't coddle me. They didn't say, well, Stephanie, come in, stretch out on the you know, stretch out on the couch and tell me all about it. No, they handed me a book and they told me to read it and write what you believe. Show me how, what are you getting out of this? You know, and, and they told me, they said, Stephanie, you are someone that is required to give back. And I stand on it. I stand by that. My counselor, God rest her soul. I honor her through my giving back. I have to. It's in me. And so when I think about people that may be sleeping on the street today, I want to make sure that I remember that somebody thought about me sleeping on the street. Sure. They did. And when they finally made contact with me, they saw this Stephanie in me. Mm -hmm. They didn't see the dirty, disheveled, you know, a hundred pounds lighter. They didn't see her. They saw this Stephanie. For the listeners out there, she's pointing at herself. I am. Professional Mental Health Association, Oklahoma shirts. Yes. Yes. So the successful self-sustainable Stephanie. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that you had messed up your housing voucher as you were telling us your story. What were the implications of that? And how did you reroute yourself back on the right path? So I can actually get another housing voucher if I fall on hard times and I actually need a subsidy. So what happened, I had a housing subsidy voucher and I qualified for a three bedroom unit. Mm -hmm. So I rented a unit that the, I didn't have the gas on and that was one of the, one of the requirements. So the first inspector, when I first signed the lease, they just didn't pay any attention to it or they just passed the house. So when it was time to renew, I didn't know that the landlord had plans to sell the house. And so the second inspector that came out called on that there was a furnace in the house that needed gas service and I didn't have the gas on. Well, well, it was an unsafe situation for the children. So I was in wrong. Mm -hmm. That didn't disqualify me from ever being able to get a voucher. It just... I didn't follow through the process. It nullified that voucher. Right. I felt defeated. I was still in an abusive situation with my daughter's dad. I had postpartum depression with my daughter that was unaddressed. Mm-hmm. I was not working. I had low self-esteem. And I had successfully talked myself out of attending a TANF program at Metro Tech. It was a surgical technology program and I passed the nursing exam to get in it. 
and I didn't go. <laughs> so <laughs> I had just defeated myself all the way around. So let's just throw away your housing on top of it. You know, <laughs> I was in a really bad spot. And did you end up back out on the streets when that housing voucher was pulled? It took a while. It took about six months. But yes, I did end up street homeless. But the, I was allowing other people that were untrustworthy to handle my children around that time. And this was before the children were removed from your care? This was before, yes. Okay. So you were able to obtain housing. How old were you when you obtained housing? When I obtained the housing voucher, I was 24. And you had your three children at that point, correct? I had two children then. I had just come back from Seattle, Washington, because I lived in Seattle with one child. I was pregnant with one. As soon as I got back from Seattle, I had one. And I had him when I was 26. Uh -huh. I got my Section 8 when I was 26. Okay. And then I had my last child when I was 27. I had Section 8 then. By the time I was 28, I was street homeless. Okay. So you were homeless for the first time at 28. Is that correct? Or you were? Yes. For the, for the first time, I was street homeless. Yes. And then how long had you been living on the streets at 28? At 28, I lived on the streets for three years, three consecutive consecutive years. So at 31 years old, you were reconnected with housing through Hope Community Services again or through us? Through through Hope Community Services. Okay. And then you've been housed ever since then. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. What do you think the difference was? What was the catalyst that kept you on the right track after you earned supported housing the second time around? So after I qualified for supported housing the second time around, I saw the value in it. Sure. I mean, I understood. I had gone through periods where I paid my own rent, got evicted, mm -hmm. stayed with family, got evicted, uh -huh. you know, stayed with friends, got evicted, you <laughs> know, stayed in dope houses and then got evicted, mm -hmm. you know, stayed in jail. Things like, but I, I I actually placed value on somebody trusting me enough to help me pay my rent, uh -huh. help me pay my electric bill mm -hmm. so that I could get on my feet. Uh -huh. <clears throat> See, I understood what get on your feet meant because uh -huh. that's a, that's an old school term, you sure. know? When when the old school people back in the day, they say, well, okay, we'll help you get on your feet. That meant to me, that, that mean, I'm not on my feet. I must be flat on my back. <laughs> I need to get up and I need to take care of my business. I was raised by a woman that worked. Her parents worked. They were entrepreneurs and veterans, mm -hmm. you know. So I understood work. I understood that. Right. And so when... Hope Community Services, when I qualified, first of all, for long-term inpatient treatment, see, that was paid for by the state of Oklahoma through Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. Uh -huh. So my drug court was on me. So I knew I need to work. So supported housing allowed me 
to pay towards my drug court use. And so <clears throat> the value of supported housing was tremendous because it took away the pressure of living expenses. Yeah. So if I didn't have to worry about paying the landlord, then I could pay the drug court uh -huh. and all of those expenses. Right. So the supported housing piece is what gave me the actual hand up. Yeah. That's what gave me the hand up. Right. Right. When when did you get your children? I actually did not. Uh -huh. My my rights were terminated. Uh -huh. My mother legally adopted and received permanent full custody of my children. Uh -huh. My mother charged me child support. Uh -huh. And she gave me a supervised visitation of my children. Uh -huh. And I followed her rules to the letter. Yeah. And I paid her child support for three children for, I think, four years. She charged me child support <laughs> until she retired uh -huh. from her job. And she was able to successfully foot the bill. Sure for my children on her own. And then she told me, she said, okay, I can do it by myself. I don't need your child support. I was able to fix my credit and things like that. But yes, we, as a family, we all successfully parented our children. I was allowed by my mother to be a part of my children's life. I was allowed to go to games, school events, doctor's appointments. I was allowed to attend family therapy with my children. But she let me know under no circumstances was I ever, if I ever decided to go back using drugs or anything like that, that she would make sure I would not ever see them again. This may seem like an, you know, an easy thing for somebody on the outside of the situation to say, just, you know, I'm hearing the story and I'm, I'm watching you tell it. So please correct me if I'm speaking completely out of turn, but it sounds to me like your mother gave you an incredible gift by taking your children in, monitoring your time with them while still letting you have a relationship and your, your kids have a relationship with you, but also making you, you know, earn it and value it, do some work to have it, which, you know, when we, when we put effort in something, we value it more and we tend to want to hold on to that. So it's, that's what it sounds like to me. Tell me if I'm off though, please. Oh, you are absolutely correct. My mother, Deborah Lane Cummings, she wrote me a letter when I went to inpatient treatment and it was called reality check. It was about an eight page document that I still have possession of. Oh my gosh. Yes. Now see, here's the thing. My mother allowed me to be sick. Uh -huh. and she also allowed me to get well. What she did not allow me to do was drag my children through it. That's incredible. She did not allow that at all. And she told me, 
She said, I will do your children. I will not do you. Mm -hmm. So mother did not bring my children to jail with me. She did not put money on my books. She did not do all of that. And I appreciate that because my children were very well taken care of. She spent every dime she ever got for those children on those children. And you can tell right today, they are all very well-rounded. My mother went to everything you can imagine. She made sure they had every hour of therapy, counseling, behavioral, everything she could think of. She signed them up for it. She made sure that they had all of the services that they ever qualified for. And she also made sure that she monitored me and my behavior. She checked my drug court stuff. She checked my treatment stuff. She checked on me because I, I'm still her child. Sure. I'm still her daughter. She still loves me, but she was required by the state of Oklahoma to protect my children from me. And she did that very well. And I appreciate her. And she knows I agree totally. You know, I I allowed her. I respected all of her decisions as far as my children were concerned. I didn't argue. I didn't buck her. But I wasn't raised like that. See, I, I'm, it, it, I'm not a product of, of a bad upbringing. Right. I have an illness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have an illness of the mind, mm -hmm. you know, and illnesses in my body, you know, <laughs> I have diagnoses. So, and they're all hereditary, sure. you know, I, I, I inherited them. Yeah. So my mother, once she was allowed to make those discoveries, and once she understood that her daughter is sick, mm -hmm. Then she allowed me to be sick. She does not judge me. She does not point fingers at me. She does not make me feel less than. She does not show disappointment towards me. You know, she just knows that if I'm sick, then I need to be trying to get well. And she'll be my biggest advocate. Yeah. If I need some help, then somebody better make sure that they try and help me, you know, because right. she knows that I will go, I, I will seek my treatment. I will go and, and turn myself in if I need to. She knows that I will do that. Not only did I have the, the tremendous amount of support that I had from the state of Oklahoma, but I had a tremendous amount of support from my family, mm -hmm. and which also brings the support level up to like 110, right? You know, and, and also the success level. Yeah. So I can say that with family support, you know, which is why we always try to look at family barriers and things like that when we're out in the field. I will ask people every now and again, do you have any family support? Uh -huh. That can be one a, a really, really big barrier yeah. So you, you were reintegrated into permanent housing and you earned your bachelor's degree in psychology. Is that correct? 
What, what year? Yes, psychology and ethics. And ethics. I love that. Where did you go to school and what year did you graduate? I attended Mid America Christian University and I graduated in May 2018. Nice. And you were connected with the association in 2017. You came to work yes. for 2017, correct? How did yes. you connect with us? How did we get you? So I was actually a mental health tech peer recovery support specialist at the Oklahoma County Crisis Reunit. Okay. That is over on Northeast 13th and Lottie. Okay. Which is Patty Corner to the wonderful Lottie House Drop-In Center. Yep. Yes. So I was doing recovery support services over there and I had a friend that came to Mental Health Association to be a recovery support specialist on a former program called Pathways. Okay. And Pathways was a case management program. Mm -hmm. So he told me, he was like, Stephanie, you need to come and work for MHA. You know what? Hold on. Let me back up, Addie. Okay. I got my degree in 2017, May 2017. Okay. Yeah, let me back. Yeah, May 2017. So I was working at Oak Crew May of 2017. And when I got my degree, I wanted to get out of the way of some young RSSs, you sure. know, recovery support specialists that needed to pay some dues and you know, <laughs> work these jobs and learn the ins and the outs of mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. And because I have been on both sides of the desk, the uh -huh. nurse's station is what we call it. Sure. I've been on both sides of the nurse's station. And it's a very humbling experience. I felt like going to work in a mental health inpatient facility completed a circle for me. Mm -hmm. I was treated very well. I was taken care of very well in inpatient facilities. And it was a way for me to give back. And so when my friend told me he came to Mental Health Association, he told me to apply and I applied for the service coordinator position for Mental Health Association Supported Housing Program, which we call MASH. Yeah. And that was in 2017. I was hired in June of 2017. Uh -huh. That program was a brand new program. And it came with 40 families. Uh -huh. We were a team of two. And I was so excited. It was summertime and I was able to get to know the city a little better and find out some things that I didn't know about how supported housing programs were working since I had graduated from supported housing. Sure. Yeah. So now I was on the other side of a supported housing program. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not the one answering the door for the case manager. I'm the case manager knocking on the door, right. <laughs> home, you know, and that was a joyful experience because if you're not home, I get to leave my card and I get to say, Hey, I came by the house. Uh -huh. um, 
you weren't home. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Let's set an appointment. Let's go to the library. I heard of this new food pantry or, hey, there's some cold weather coming. Do you have groceries? Right. Or, hey, so-and-so is paying light bills. Do you want to go and see if you qualify? Or, hey, stimulus checks just came out. Do you need some new sheets, towels? Do you want to go to Walmart or something? Right. You know, it, it, it gave me an opportunity to try to keep people housed and think about the things that I would want. Now, I have a place to live and mm -hmm. I'm in my house. You know, while I'm out shopping or something and I got clients that live at home now, they're in the house and I see something at Ross and I, hey, so-and-so <laughs> had something on sale. Right. See, things like that. So I really enjoyed working with the participants while I was doing supported housing. I got to experience some death uh -huh. working with supported housing participants. And that was, it was unexpected. Sure. That was one component of doing service coordination that I was truly not prepared, prepared for. I was absolutely not prepared for it. Yeah. I didn't really believe that I could really do more mm -hmm. for people, but I also, in the back of my mind, I would think when somebody passed, I would think, golly, man, I wish I could have done something more. And so that that was one of, that was another barrier of just being transparent. It was another barrier that I had put up for myself in that position. So what I'm hearing is that you were protecting yourself from the internal devastation, which makes sense because even with all of the work we do, there is the occasional time that not everyone has a good outcome. Does that sound right? Yeah. You know, I'm so optimistic and I try to be so positive and it just hit me. And I was like, wow, you know, wait a minute. I just saw this person. And because I'm a person in long-term recovery, I have a tendency to internalize things. And so I didn't get any treatment. I didn't call EAP like I should have. I didn't do the things that I know as a person in recovery. I didn't do what I knew I should have done. And so it started to reflect on how I was performing my job. So making a transition to street outreach and rapid response was a wonderful change. It was a wonderful way for me to continue with the agency. It was a wonderful way for me to advocate for people because everybody in MHA supported housing used to sleep on the street. Sure. So what it sounds like what happened with the change in your dynamic with the association is that both you and your supervisors realized that you were in a role that was negatively impacting your mental health and recovery efforts. 
So by moving you to a different role within the association, you could continue to do the good work you were doing, but also level it up and feel safe and feel emotionally supported and be your best self for the people that you're serving. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so thankful that there are people that I see on a regular basis, a day-to-day basis that can see things in me that I may not be able to see. Sure. I'm so thankful. And I'm also glad that after this much time in long-term recovery, that I'm able to take people's suggestions today. I'm able to reflect I'm able to take my inventory. I'm able to, you know, look around and consult with others and see where this person may be right and grasp it and most certainly utilize my tools. And a lot of my tools are just consulting with other people and seeing where someone may have a different perspective that just may benefit me in the long run. I believe it absolutely has. My time at MHA has been full of wonderful reasons for people to give me things like star, you know, gratitude. (laughs) I love the gratitude. Yes, things like that. There was a time in my life when I felt like I did not deserve those type of things. It was a time in my life when I felt like nobody would ever see that type of stuff in me. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful today and I'm very thankful. You know, I'm thankful to you for allowing me to share and even believing that I had something that needed to be shared. You know, yeah. according to housing works. Yeah. It does. It really does. I'm grateful that you were able to come on and tell your story. And we are doing this just in the nick of time. I'm getting another time warning. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) A minute and 52 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on and telling us your story. I'm excited to share it with everybody else. You're welcome, Addie. I thank you so much for your time and your interest in my story. I really hope that I said something today that would enlighten somebody and empower somebody to continue to do good things and continue to see our people that sleep on the street as just people. They're people, you know? Needing help, yeah. Yeah. I'm positive you've said multiple things that will speak to somebody. I'm glad, Addie. I'm so glad. (laughs) All right. Tell us how many years of sobriety you have once again before we sign off. I have 16 years in long-term recovery with no relapses and I am medication compliant. I love that. Thank you so much. (laughs) I do too. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye, you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health, please call one of our free mental health assistance center lines Monday through Friday between 8.30 a.m. and 5 p.m at 405-943-3700 or 918-585-1213 or contact us via our website at www.org. Additionally, the National Crisis Line is now live and can be reached by texting or dialing 988. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Download.